We're continuing in our Meet Jesus series, and in the Meet Jesus series, our whole goal has been to uh, take a fresh look at Jesus and His interactions with people, and that will cause us to love Jesus more, and also to follow Him uh, as better disciples, as better followers, as more committed followers, to love people like Jesus loved people. We're going to look at a couple of passages from John and from 1 John, and then in Matthew chapter 4. So take, uh, take a moment, I'll let you turn to John chapter 6, and we're going to look at what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And we've got a lot of examples. We've got people that uh, actually follow Jesus, but let's start with a real life um, let's start with a real life scenario. You can probably identify with this because you see it all the time. This is nothing. Uh, this is nothing necessarily new. Um, but in uh, a few years ago, when we were starting this church, I uh, found a graphic designer in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and, and I, I had followed her work for uh, over a year or two. I had um, listed a lot of different logos and designs that she had done, and I really appreciated her prayerful. Uh, process. She was saturated in the Word. Um, she made us fill out a 15-page document about our vision, our mission, our passion, our um, values, um, Bible verses, and different things that the Lord had called us to. And she had really done a thorough job of helping us prepare. And um, and as we were working through the logo and different designs and things like that, uh, I said, "Now, are you a, a University of Michigan fan? Because that could be a deal breaker." Uh, because I can't, you know, I can't do work with anyone who, who is a Michigan fan. And I was kidding. And she said, no, but this may be a deal breaker that we are active members of Mars Hill Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And, um, and we're uh, under Rob Bell, uh, the pastor there. And I don't know how many of you know much about Rob Bell, but maybe a few months later after this, uh, he released a book in which he declared um, hell as a non-reality under the title of Love Wins, meaning just that everybody goes to heaven. And that all of a sudden, with this viewpoint, there is no hell, uh, and all people will eventually be saved, and that, that everything is just going to be okay. Um, and so it kind of muddies the water. Well, then why would Jesus have to die, right? Why would God send His only Son to die on a cross if in the end everybody just gets there? And so through hundreds of pages of trying to wiggle your way out of that problem, it really caused uh, the falling away of this mega church pastor to where now he's uh, works for Oprah Winfrey and is kind of one of her many spiritual advisors um, and just kind of preaches a happy, free, everybody sort of gospel. John 6.66 says, After this, many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer followed him. After this, many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. This is following, it says after this, this is following a period where Jesus had just reached thousands of people. I mean, really, thousands of people had flocked to Jesus and He had fed them. And this is after the episode of John the Baptist being beheaded and Jesus' sort of pinnacle of His ministry. And He realized that people were about to come and take Him by force and make Him king. And so... The crowds of people who were literally following Jesus on a daily basis were swelling. And so at one point, Jesus just turns around and says, uh, you know, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part in me. Now, obviously, he didn't really mean that because nobody did that. 
Um, but what he was saying is that this fellowship, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ, has less to do with uh, sort of campaigning for a political person and, and throwing your uh, support behind me as some sort of political Messiah, but really has everything to do with your self-denial and your struggle to follow me in a committed faith-walking relationship. And so Jesus thinned out the crowds from time to time. You see, it's always good to have a big crowd. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. In a book of the Bible that if you wanted to test your salvation, 1 John carries with it five very explicit tests to know whether you are a Christian or not. And in one of those passages, it says they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they would have been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. So it's prompted me to ask you this question. Is there any situation today that you can imagine where you might decide to stop following Jesus? And what would happen in your life today for you just to make the conscious decision to stop following Jesus, to say, I'm kind of done with this? What is it about your life or your circumstances or your condition that would make you say, this just isn't worth it anymore? Is it persecution? Maybe you had been saved under the uh, auspices of the prosperity gospel that you were taught that if you give your life to Jesus that you're going to be healthy and wealthy and you're never going to be sick and if you just have enough faith to name it and claim it that everything is going to go well for you and then things stopped going well for you and maybe you are experiencing a level of persecution and at that point maybe consciously or unconsciously you said I just don't know if I can follow Jesus any longer just like these disciples from John six sixty six. Maybe the situation that you can imagine where you just will decide to stop following Jesus is that of forgiving someone. Maybe somebody has terribly wounded you. Maybe somebody has inflicted serious damage on you. And, and because of God's command for you to extend love and grace and mercy to somebody who has wronged you in some way you have been wounded, and that that call for you to extend grace and forgiveness to your deepest enemy... It's just too much for you, and, and so you're willing to walk away from the faith. Maybe, maybe for many of you, this is a more serious issue that hits closer to home because it's, it's happening all around our culture. Maybe the call for you that will cause you to abandon Jesus is forsaking bad doctrine. Maybe you're, you're just struggling with the Bible as the authentic Word of God. Maybe you are lingering doubts just continue to hover and, and you want to see a Jesus that is more relevant to our culture. One that just is kind of buddy-buddy with everybody and it doesn't matter how they live and it doesn't matter what they believe and, and you want the gospel to be a little bit more palatable to our culture and so you're willing to forsake good doctrine and the Word of God so that you can really be more relevant to culture and not experience... Uh, hateful things on your Facebook feed or something like that. Um, maybe that's what is going to cause you to walk away from Jesus is, is forsaking bad doctrine or myths 
or false beliefs about the word, maybe embracing good doctrine. And, you know, the key to that is if you're saying things like, to me, you know, I know that the Bible says this, but to me, yeah, I think it's more like this. To me is kind of the, the idol's tool, how we craft our idols today. We shape and form God into the, the God that we want Him to be, not the God He presents Himself as. By using the little word to me. You know, to me, God is more like a happy God. He just loves everybody. And, and if you just come sit on the porch with Him, He'll smoke a pipe and, you know, you guys just kind of hang out. And, and after a while, He'll fall asleep and you can just kind of go do what you want. And, and in the end, everybody, love wins in the end. Maybe that's what's going to cause you to stop following Jesus. That's what it was for these disciples. Maybe for you, it's going to be something a little bit more um, difficult, like crushed dreams. Maybe you've got a picture of what your life will look like. Maybe you can kind of envision what the next 20 years of your life will look like, and you can sort of project out where you're going to be. And it includes success, and maybe it includes a beach house, and maybe it includes a a bank account and a retirement. And I don't know what your dreams are, but maybe your dreams that you've been working toward and planning toward and you sort of see things the way they might go. And, and maybe it's going to be the shattering of your dreams that is going to cause you to say, I didn't, I didn't give my life to you, Jesus, so that you can shatter my dreams and my hopes. It's a hard fall, that one. Maybe for you, it is unfulfilled expectations. Maybe you're unwilling to embrace a lifestyle of humility and service to others. Those are all reasons that people walk away from Jesus every day. But for some of us, it's not going to even be that clean of a break. For others, it's just a long, slow drift away from Jesus. And you wake up five years from now and you realize, I don't know if I ever really believed any of this stuff. They just drifted, and they can't point to a time when they ever consciously changed. They just stopped walking, and they stopped following Jesus, and it was just gradual. You know, for many of you, for many of us, for many people in our church, in our culture, in our world, the church in general, they can never really answer a question like this, what made me stop following Jesus? What made me identify with John 666? What made me say, I'm just going to stop walking with Jesus? They can't really say that because they never, ever came to a place in their life when they actually started following Jesus. They may have said a prayer of salvation. Maybe when they were 7, 9, 14, 18, a rededication here, a recommitted effort there. Maybe they raised their hand every time an invitation was given. And maybe this time they hoped it would take. Maybe they were even baptized. But surely these experiences aren't the same things as a lifetime, a consistent pattern of walking in sacrificial, passionate love and fellowship of Jesus Christ. We know what a committed life to Jesus looks like. We've seen it everywhere. We see it all over Scripture. He takes ordinary fishermen and he transforms them into people in Acts 4.13 where the religious leaders were amazed and said they took note that these ordinary, uneducated fishermen were able to do this godly work. And they took note that they had been with Jesus. You see, the gospel is very clear. When people receive Jesus and they become lifelong committed followers, there is a dramatic transformation within them. 
Now, depending on where you started, if you were a child, that dramatic transformation, you know, it springs up into new life and prevents you from making life-destructive decisions. So, so the life change for you is not necessarily what you came from, but what God spares you from, which is, to me, a favorable testimony. I would much rather hear a testimony of someone who didn't foul up their life. But we know what a life committed to Jesus looks like. It's a transformed life. It is dramatically different than what it could be. It is actively obeying and following and becoming more like Jesus. There is progress made. Sometimes we get impatient with that progress or with that process because life change isn't mechanical. If I I, uh, had a pile of bricks here and I wanted to transform a pile of bricks into a neat... uh, uh, pillar, uh, it would take me moments, right? And the more of us that could stack those, right? The more of us that could stack these, you know, pillars into a, uh, we can make a pretty display right here easily with a mechanic. But, but spiritual growth is more like an organic, it's more like a tree growing. And you can't make a tree grow faster, it just grows. And so that's the kind of progress that we see made in a true disciple's life. It's a slow process where they become more and more like Jesus. And I'm not talking about perfection. And I'm not saying that you're not going to fall and struggle. What is it that will keep you from walking with Jesus? What is it that's going to make you turn away? For some people, they can't answer that because they've never really started following Jesus. I woke up uh, discouraged uh, this week, a couple of days, uh, because I had been following a friend who a year ago started a church plant in Oklahoma City. Uh, there was something that he posted. It's been one year since we launched, and there have been over 1,500 new followers in Christ in this town of 19,000 people. And just immediately I thought, oh, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? Why is there not 1,500 new believers you know, in Souderton, Sellersville, Perkasie, Harleysville, in our area. Why are we not experiencing this amazing transformative growth and, and uh, people receiving the gospel? And, and I don't want to necessarily poke holes at what they are doing and what we're not doing. I don't think that's the issue here. But I think that this is indicative of something wrong with our culture. Because it hasn't always been this way. George Whitfield used to preach to thousands and thousands of people, and he would, he would be noted for all the people who would come and listen to him um, and follow him and, and, and be a part of his evangelistic crusades. And someone once asked him, um, George, how many people were converted during this meeting of all these thousands? And he reportedly replied, I have no idea, but we should know more in six months. What's he getting at? He's saying that that somehow we've made the line of salvation a little bit easy. (laughs) Somehow we've made it really easy for people just to to raise their hand in the quiet moment of every head is bowed and every eye is closed and no one is peeking and it's just an easy moment for you just to say a little prayer and have all your sins wiped out and a free ticket to heaven. And listen, I'm not poking fun. I'm just as guilty as this as anybody in my past. But somehow we've messed up. Somehow we've shortened the gospel and we've made evangelism separate from discipleship or fellowship. 
You follow what I'm saying? Somehow we've made it easy for people to cross the line of salvation. For them to, um, to see as their finish line the prayer of salvation. And once they've broken through that barrier, that that's it. That from now on, all they have to do is just kind of live a relatively moral life. But even if they don't, there's lots of forgiveness and there's lots of grace. And they're basically free to live any way they want to as long as they're relatively moral and they sort of stay within the tribe. Does that sound familiar? And if you're really, you know, spiritual, you'll come to like a Sunday night discipleship group or a... And if you're really spiritual, you'll come to like an extra prayer meeting and maybe you'll do a small group or a book study or some accountability. But, but that's just for the people who are like really serious and only in sporadic sort of short seasons. You see how we kind of goof things up a little bit? We've made crossing the line of salvation the goal. And I wonder if that's what Jesus meant when He said, follow me to His disciples. I wonder if that's what He meant. How have we so truncated the Gospel that it's, it's not quite having the same effect that it did on a handful of fishermen, teenagers, many of whom would be martyred, many of whom would fall, uh, who would never fall away, but would continue confessing Christ um, long into their elderly years. Bill Hull, in his book Conversion and Discipleship, outlines uh, six different sort of gospels that we preach today. One is the forgiveness-only gospel. It's just a call to be forgiven. It focuses almost exclusively on forgiveness. And it's very simple. Pray this prayer, walk this aisle, raise your hand, and be forgiven, and go to heaven. And you get saved by sort of agreeing on a simple set of facts. And what it does is it produces people who live in complete freedom to live any way they choose. And, And sort of their walk with God becomes sin management. How can I just sort of manage my sin? Not really repent of it. Still sort of indulge in it. But really just sort of keep it at bay so that it doesn't really ruin me. It's like keeping a pet tiger in your closet, right? Eventually it's just going to destroy you, but, but you're just going to kind of feed it and keep it out of sight for a while. Knowing that there's forgiveness. And it, it, Jesus following Jesus is really optional, It's marked by passivity. Its primary weakness is what it doesn't mention because surely there is forgiveness in Christ. Amen? But it doesn't mention the continual need for repentance, for the call to holiness, for following Jesus at all costs, for obeying Jesus and fulfilling the Great Commission. There's another gospel that you see everywhere, and it's the liberal gospel. It's the liberal gospel that its main goal is relevance to the culture. We have to dumb down all the doctrines. We have to take out the miracles. We have to remove anything mystical. We have to stop talking, number one, about sin and hell. That's old stuff for old people in an older time. This is a sophisticated scientific group. And so we can't have miracles, and we can't have sin, and we can't have sinners, and we certainly can't have a place of eternal punishment. So they remove all the offensive stuff, and now the call is let's make heaven on earth now. Let's feed the poor. Let's clothe the home. Let's do social good stuff now. And let's just transform society. And doctrine doesn't really matter as long as we're just doing good stuff. That's the social liberal gospel. 
We also see the insidious nature of the prosperity gospel that is really sweeping all around the world. It's being exported from America into all sorts of third world countries where the only thing you have to do is acknowledge who Jesus is and he's a healer and he'll heal all your wounds and he'll make you healthy and he'll make you successful and he'll make you prosperous and all you have to do is have enough faith and if you can generate enough faith then you can sort of name it and claim it. So you have to watch out for people like Joyce Meyer and Joel Osteen. And I'm not ashamed to say their names out loud because they have publicly declared a false gospel. And these people are making millions of dollars by exporting a gospel that's, that's making it really easy for everybody to be saved, but it's also making it really easy for them to have everything they wanted. <laughs> it's a dangerous, dangerous gospel. Then there is the consumer gospel, which is sort of where we would fall into, where we're looking for a church or a kingdom that really just does everything for us. From cradle to grave, we've got all of our needs met. We've got all the right programs. We've got all the right things. We can just sort of come into one place, and it's got the, the music we like, and we can build a compound with a coffee shop, and it can have a, a, a swing and a, a playground inside of it, and it can, we can just preach the right message with the right music and the right clothes, and, and everything is just right so that you feel right at home. And there's really no need to go outside of the walls, but, but if at some point that stops meeting your need, then rest assured there's a mega church coming soon that will just open up and you can just move everything there. It's just, you just fit right in. You can come in, be anonymous, and go out, and everything's going to be okay. There's also a religious right gospel. The religious right gospel is, is filled with suits and ties and the right dress and the right attitudes and it's sort of a us for you have to believe it's very rigid it's very doctrinally right and it's very cold and there's not a lot of love and there's not a lot of grace and it's a very exclusive kind of group that if you mess up we forgive you but you're gone sort of shuts the world out it refuses to live it's happiest when it's in a uh, it's in the woods way out there somewhere where no one can get to it and the world is sort of out there and we're safe in here. Is this what Jesus meant when He said, follow me? Do we see Jesus' command lived out in any of these manifestations of our gospel? Let's look at what He did say. Look at Matthew chapter 4. It should be on the screen for you. Matthew 4, 18-22, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Uh, and he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. And mending their nets, he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. How do we reconcile our gospel that we preach with what Jesus called his disciples to do, to be lifelong followers of Christ. I really only have one point this morning and a couple of application points. But one, one main point that I want us to see is that following Jesus is different 
than praying a prayer of salvation. That there really is no difference between, there is no separation between evangelism and discipleship or fellowship. And the, the, the more we blur those things together, the better off we'll be in the future. The better off our children will be. That if we reclaim a right gospel, whereby we understand that Jesus lays claim to your life, we have been bought with a price. That our life is worth giving. That Jesus is worth following, not just once at an earlier point of your life, so that you receive all the benefits of heaven without all the costs of a difficult life of following Him. But we, we see that the, the life of fellowship is worth, Jesus is worth following. There are over 33 times that this uh, call to follow is extended. Matthew 4.19 that we just read, Jesus says, follow me. In Matthew 8.22, He's challenging a disciple uh, who says, I'll follow you wherever you go. But first, let me go bury my dead. Jesus says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. When Jesus saw Matthew or Levi sitting in a tax booth in Matthew 9.9, he says, follow me. And immediately he left everything and followed him. In Matthew 10.38, Jesus says, whoever does not take up his cross, whoever doesn't take up the, the execution tool and follow me cannot be my disciple. It's not the easy believism gospel that we're used to. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me in Matthew 16, 24, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus challenges the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, 21. If you want to be perfect, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me completely. In Mark 1, 17, Jesus tells the disciples to follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. In Mark 8.34, Jesus calls the crowd to himself and he says to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Uh, In Luke 5.27, he sees Levi and tells him to follow him in every gospel that's recorded. Um, In Luke 9.61, another one says, let me follow you, Lord, but first let me go say farewell to those who are at my house. And Jesus says, you leave and follow me. In John 10, 27, he says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them, speaking of their intimate relationship, and they follow me. In John 12, 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. In John 21, 22, Jesus challenges Peter in his reinstatement and says, If it's my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You just follow me. What is Jesus' command? What is his his gospel? And how is it different from the gospel that we preach today? Jesus desires what? He desires followers. He desires people who are, are willing to say, I'm willing to leave it all behind. Our gospel invitation should sound something like this. If you're not willing to walk away from everything right now, don't pray this prayer. Wouldn't that be different? Wouldn't that change the number of hands that go up? Hands might go down, right? If you're not willing to to say no to your dream, if you're not willing to lay down your bad doctrine, if you're not willing to, to lay down your expectations of a happy, easy, prosperous life, If you're not willing to pick it all up today and move to Kathmandu, 
and, and hike the mountains, you know, in search of a lost tribe so that you can share the gospel with them. This is sort of the end goal. That if, if, if God can write that on your blank sheet of paper and you'll sign it, then you know that you're in that forsaking all, I follow him sort of mentality. But oftentimes we present the gospel in such a way that we just want to secure a decision. And we neglect any sort of fellowship. Jesus said, count the cost, right? If a, if a general is going to war, won't he stop and count his troops and say, wait, I don't have enough guys to actually win this war. Or if a person wants to build a house and he realizes he doesn't have enough money to build the house, Jesus says, count the cost. Yet we have made it so simple for a person to pray a prayer, have all their sin forgiven, and then we sort of lay out a path for them. Or maybe we don't even spell it out. Maybe we don't even go to that length to spell it out. But maybe we just say, by our own lifestyle, all you have to do is just be relatively moral. You go to church once or twice a month at least, and occasionally show up for something else. And this is really all you have to do to become a Christ follower. We've modeled something impotent and weak. And frankly, it's produced a generation of evangelicals who vote for crazy candidates. I don't know, I scratch my bald head wondering where all these Jesus followers are who are casting their votes and endorsing people who stand up for abortion. People who are willing to stand up for someone who supports the killing of an unborn child. To list only one atrocity. But who can simply stand behind the podium of a church or a Christian college or something and just identify with Christians as easily as we make it for people to raise their hand and pray a simple prayer like it's some sort of magical incantation and have all their sins magically removed and live any way they want to. I think we've missed it. And it, and it pains my heart to know that in the past I may have presented the gospel in such a way to make it easy for someone to respond. And so here's the remedy, all right? I don't want to just point out a problem and walk away. And my fingers are a little bit numb, so I'm going to move forward <laughs> to help us understand what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. It's just a sentence. To be a follower of Jesus is to have a consistent lifestyle of sacrificially abiding, obeying, repenting, believing, serving, becoming like, loving passionately, and walking with Jesus. Probably not all that hard for you to piece that back together in your mind. It's all the great passages that Jesus sort of refers to in summary form in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples and teach them to do what? Teach them just to pray a prayer and get baptized and then everything's going to be cool. That's not what he said. Teach them to obey what? A little bit? No, teach them to obey everything that I command you. This is Jesus' expectation of his followers. And this is what Jesus would do when great crowds would gather. He would thin them out with a call to discipleship. 
A follower of Christ is a consistent person who is consistently living a lifestyle of sacrificially abiding and obeying, repenting and believing, serving and becoming like, loving and walking with Jesus to the uttermost parts of the world. A person who has signed a blank contract and said, Jesus, you fill in the details. I'll believe what you want me to believe. I'll say what you want me to say. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll give what you want me to give. I'll serve how you want me to serve. I'll forgive how you want me to forgive. I'll love my enemies the way you want me to love my enemies. I'll do what you ask me to do. Only that I may be counted with you in overflowing, passionate love for what you accomplished for me at the cross. In response to what you gave, I, I give all to you. You see, Jesus wants everything from you. And He promises the abundant life is not found in what you get from Him, but what you give to Him. And isn't that a different call than what we typically hear? And I grieve that I've promoted a gospel that hasn't emphasized enough of what Jesus calls His followers to do. Two quick application points. Number one, change the way you share the gospel. Just simply change the way you share the gospel. Stop emphasizing a simple, easy believism and start emphasizing fellowship and discipleship. See, discipleship is an attack on bonus. You took a test in high school and you got all the questions, and then at the end there was like bonus questions that you got extra points for. Somehow we've tacked on discipleship and fellowship as bonus stuff. Oh, that's for really good Christians. No, that's for every Christian. That's for every Christian. Jesus expects fellowship, not as a bonus, but as a minimum. The gospel is not the entry point, it's the end point. Fellowship is everything. Not a bonus. So change the way we share the gospel. Jared um, Wilson uh, posted this week, play the right songs with the right fervency and you could get kids to give their lives to Yogi Bear if they thought it would save their hormonal souls. There's some truth to that. There's some truth to that. And, and I took that in and it, and it wounded. And, and in good ways, it crushed me. And it, it, I, I put this on our public page that it's a good reminder to use thoughtful caution when presenting the whole gospel to kids and to others to allow them time and truth and to allow the Holy Spirit to do the hard soul work. Change the way you share the gospel. And if you struggle with that, if you're not quite sure which of those gospel that I mentioned earlier that you tend to present... I would love to resource you and to help you understand how we can preach a fuller gospel message. The second thing I want you to do, number one, change the way you share the gospel. Number two, uh, examine yourself. Number two is just examine yourself. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says to examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Really simple. It can be more straightforward than that. Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not realize that this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail to meet the test. Isn't that black and white? It's a very biblical application. You should test yourself. You should examine yourself. Just like George Whitfield said, I won't know how many converts we have until months from now. Until they meet the test. Until the, the change 
is manifested and the Holy Spirit is birthed within them. Did you know that there are over 19 tests, explicit tests in the New Testament, 19 of them that describe whether you're a true follower of Christ or not? The book of John holds at least five of those tests. Galatians 5 describes the fruit of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. Romans 8, especially verse 9, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit if the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in them does not belong to Him. The Bible wants you to know. Jesus wants you to know where you stand. Are you a follower of Him or a follower in this world? So you should examine yourself to see whether you're a follower. And if you've struggled, or maybe as many of us have, I've had to take a hard look at my salvation experience and say, what gospel did I buy into? Was I just sort of hoping for heaven and a moral life? Was I just sort of looking for a free pass to live any way I want to, knowing that I would have a get-out-of-jail-free pass? I could sin in any way I want to, knowing that the bill was always paid? I think there, Jesus said um, the kingdom of God is like a, a farmer who sowed wheat. And in the evening, at night, his enemy came and sowed what? Weeds. He put weeds in with the wheat. And he said, we, we're not going to be able to separate them. The, the hired hand said, well, what should we do? Should we go cut down the weeds? He said, no way. If you cut down the weeds, you're going to cut down the wheat with it. Let them both grow up together, and in the end, we'll separate them. Do you know he's describing the church? He's describing this room, weeds and wheat. And God help us. God help us if we make salvation so simple that it requires nothing of us but a quiet prayer while no one's looking and the promise of heaven. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, this has been a deeply convicting uh, few weeks as I've examined what we've done to your gospel. It's been deeply convicting and it's, it's changed the way I have committed to walk forward in presenting the gospel. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom. I pray that you would give us insight. I pray that you would give us a discerning spirit. You promised that the helper the paraclete would come alongside of us and be within us. The, the Holy Spirit, your hagios, would dwell within us and would remind us of all truth. You don't intend for a message like this to create doubt without revealing your truth alongside of it. There should be some healthy examination in this room as a result of a message like this. There should be some some healthy examination going on that says, what gospel did I believe? And what am I willing to lay down that I may be counted as a follower of Jesus? That when the final step is taken, that I would be found in Christ at the end of my life, not just at the beginning. That there would be a continual walking and sacrificial Obedience, though it might cost us something, that we would continue to follow you. Let us not be like these disciples who, after hearing, turn back 
and no longer walked with you. Let 1 John 2.19 never be said of us that they went out away from us because they were never really of us. Lord, let us be finishers and followers. Let us not be those who propagate a false gospel. Let us stress the call to follow you simultaneously with the call to trust in you by faith and to repent of our sins. Would you forgive us? And would you affirm your presence in our life? I pray that your Holy Spirit would be giving assurance all around the room to those who are in Christ. To those who recognize that maybe they have not believed in the gospel, would you, would you strengthen them to commit to following? Though it will cost them everything. I pray that they would be counted with you, Jesus. Would you do a work among us? In Jesus' name, amen.